From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi. Preferably not when we're chewing. This is the second of two episodes we recorded while in Brooklyn for On Air Fest 2019. And here, we ventured beyond the festival to meet up with literary agent Jessica Sinsheimer, who made time to chat with us before heading out to another jam-packed day in the capital of the publishing world. Jessica is an associate at the Sarah Jane Fryman Literary Agency, which means she's an outstanding person to talk to whether you're looking for a book recommendation, I was, or want to ask, what is a literary agent exactly? I did. We also covered everything from her fortuitous freshman year roommate assignment to the professional experiences that led her to create the Manuscript Wishlist website and the Manuscript Academy, two popular tools that connect writers, agents, and editors with the goal of increasing both transparency and access in the publishing industry. Our conversation about the Manuscript Academy included the Manuscript Academy podcast, where, I'm excited to say, she's invited me to appear on a future episode. Stay tuned for details on that. Two more notes. We didn't go to brunch, but you can be sure we made a coffee run before we sat down to talk. And Jessica and I have known each other for a while and have similar senses of humor. So, fair warning, this episode contains even more laughter than usual. Jessica Sinsheimer, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Even though I'm in your co-working space in Dumbo here in Brooklyn, I feel like I still have to welcome you. I'm thrilled to be here, Ted. It's very early in the morning, but I'll be as articulate as possible. So, yeah, I've been here in New York for On Air Fest for four days now. It's been great. I really... I think one thing is much as I'm a Midwest guy, I've spent all but six months of my life living in the Midwest, but one thing that really strikes you when you come to a place like Brooklyn is how how many things are within walking distance. And I, I, I texted my wife, Jenny, the other night and said, I don't even have a plan when I walk out of the hotel. I just think, I'll find somewhere to eat. I'm going to go walk around. And I've, of course, been listening to podcasts while I've been walking around, which is fun and kind of meta when you're at a podcasting conference. So it's been great. I know you've, I mean, you've been here for 15 years now, something like that. What has that experience for you of, I mean, I know you came to college in New York at Sarah Lawrence, Jessica and I, we've, we've known each other for four or five years now. So we know a decent amount of each other's history, but you came to college at Sarah Lawrence. You're from California originally, how does one go about building a life in New York when you this isn't the place that you grew up? See, that's actually something I think a lot about because it was 
so many things had to line up to make it possible for me to come here. I was not that kid whose parents were like, anywhere you want to go to college, we'll pay for it. We'll get you a new car. No, it was not like that at all. Things lined up in a way that looking back is absolutely astonishing to make it possible for me to come here. And so I arrived as an 18-year-old at this little tiny campus that I felt like suddenly people understood me. Growing up in California is like the one neurotic kid when everyone's chill. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can relate to this, Ted. <laughs> Suddenly I arrived in New York and everyone's like, hey, what's that? What's that? Let's go do this thing. More coffee. Go there. Go there. Was amazing. And so I feel like that was a really nice source of just comfort and like, yes, you did the right thing when I got here. And that was really powerful. And people were making art on campus all the time. You'd wake up and there'd be weird installations on the lawn. Like one day someone painted all the rocks to look like mice with jobs. <laughs> so like some of them had bow ties, some of them had pens, some of them were like painting stuff. It was, you never knew what was going to happen. And that creativity meant so much to everyone here. It felt like I was where I was meant to be. And not everyone gets that. So I feel incredibly lucky. And then I am that person you will hate because I got hired at my current job two weeks after I graduated college. Now, to be fair, I had three internships before that. And she actually said she hired me because I was the only one who had worked both at a publishing house and at a literary agency. And not many people had both uh, experience on both sides of that desk. I think if you are looking to make the move to New York, it's gotten a lot more expensive since then. A lot of people have been quoting different numbers about how much money you should have saved up. You know, you're going to need first months, last months, and a security deposit when you move in. You're going to need to find a roommate. You're going to need to know the neighborhoods that won't get you killed, which there are not that many of those left. And you need to have some idea of what you can do until you get the job. So I think if you're moving fresh from college, you want to have something like, you know, you're really good at bartending. You're good at waiting tables. You're good at being a nanny. You have experience in all of these fields that will translate to the men Manhattan people who are going to hire you so that you can get paid while you're waiting for the job to happen. Because believe it or not, Ted, most people have to wait more than two weeks. <laughs> so you talked about getting, you're, a, you're an agent at the Sarah J. Fryman Literary Agency. Can you talk a little bit about just what a literary agent does? I think most people, we have an idea, we kind of fill in the blanks about what that might mean. And I think in doing so, there's probably some misconceptions about what it is. So what does, there's a lot of different components of that kind of job. I think most people picture something kind of like the Devil Wears Prada, <laughs> which is not accurate at all. Uh, we're not wearing couture. We're not wearing heels. We're not yelling at people. We're not pounding fists on desks. And we're not dealing with town cars all the time. Believe me, I'd love to have a town car. The subway breaks all the time. I don't even know what's happening with that thing most of the time. Electrical outage today? What? No, it's not like that at all. It's mostly like a bunch of nerds in cardigans and flats who are talking about books all day and on the phone a lot. And someone asked me last week what I do. I was just feeling punchy and I was like, I walk around the office talking with great enthusiasm onto the phone. And that's actually not that inaccurate because I spend a lot of time on the phone just kind of pacing, get my steps in. But I feel like so much of the industry has moved forward by conversations. And that's probably one of the reasons that podcasts do so well in our industry. And I think a lot of us are auditory learners. But the basic answer is that writers who want to get published send their books to literary agents. Agents will then find the people whose work I don't want to say lights them up. That sounds dumb. The, the, the work that makes you remember why you love books. Those are the clients that you take on. And it doesn't happen all the time. And sometimes you go months where you're like, oh, why don't I just love something? You just have to wait. You can't control that. You can't control like what projects you fall in love with. And then you also have to really get along with the clients that you're working with because there's so much brainstorming. And you can't brainstorm with someone you hate. It just doesn't work. 
Not that I've ever been there, but I imagine that's really hard. You have to like be in this open, creative, vulnerable place and trust each other that if you throw out an idea, they're not going to be like, that's stupid. You know? Yeah, you're looking for a creative collaborator to create the best books possible. And so then once you've polished up this book, you send it out to editors you've met who you think will love the book and take it the rest of the way and be a good fit for the author. You don't ever want to be in a situation where the author and the editor don't get along. Again, that hasn't happened, but can you imagine how terrible that would be? They'd be like, edit this book. No! You're just generally looking for good creative opportunities for people you care about. I think that's probably the, the main part of it. I think one of the most, and it makes sense, but one of the most interesting things in talking to you over the years about this is I think putting yourself in the position, me as someone who writes or as a writer, I think a lot of times you tend to think, well, if what I write is good, of course this person I'm sending it to is is going to want to take it on or represent it. And if I get a rejection, that ipso facto means what I wrote was bad. And one thing that I've really learned from talking with you over the years is how much, how many different considerations initially an editor, or excuse me, initially an agent, and then an editor have to take into account to say, not only do I like this and does it resonate with me, but in the case of an agent, do I have a mental list of editors that I think might be interested in this? Does this seem like it would have a place in in the world that it would fit on someone's list of titles that they have but isn't duplicative of what they already have. And I think as a a writer, it's really easy to forget about that or miss that because writing and, I mean, any kind of creative field, if if you do it well and you invest in it, it's a really personal thing, whether you're putting something on a page or it's a sculpture or it's video or it's audio or whatever else. And so any kind of rejection you get, it's so easy to take as... I'm not good enough or what I'm doing is is bad. And I don't mean to say that certainly I'm sure you get queries sometimes where the work is just not good. But there's a lot of people that it's it's all about finding that fit where it's not just that it's good, but it fits with fits with the person that you're sending it to. And so I, I know that's something I've heard you talk a lot about is not only getting your work as a writer or as a creative just more generally to a point where you're really proud of it, but also really doing your homework about who might be a person that this actually fits with, that would appeal to them, and not just kind of blind CCing a whole bunch of agents and saying, like, I'm just going to send this to everyone under the sun because I think it's that good and one of them's going to love it. Right. Well, I think a lot of this can be compared to watching your friends find relationships, right? And everyone has that friend who's, like, so beautiful, so smart, so talented, so, like, you know, everything. And she gets shot down, too. Because that doesn't mean she's a match for 100% of people out there. That just means that she's awesome and has to find her awesome fit. And so no matter how awesome you are, you're not going to match with everybody. That's a, that's a huge thing, too. And it's absolutely true. If I'm looking at a project even if I really love it. Like there's something in my inbox right now that I think the author is a freaking genius. I love everything about how she's branded herself. I love all the essays she's writing, but you know, the essay market's tough right now. The target audience she's looking at is not a group that we know reads a lot. There isn't a subgenre for her where I can say, oh yes, all of the people in my notes want exactly this thing. Every time I meet an editor, I take notes on what they want. So I have a searchable database of what everyone's looking for. But yeah, it's actually, it feels really irresponsible to take on something if I'm not 
reasonably confident that I know the people to send it to. Because what if I say yes and that author goes with me and it doesn't work? Whereas if they'd said yes to somebody else who knew the right people, it would have happened. Like, I don't want to stand in the way of success for somebody, even if it means it takes a little longer. So you talked there a little bit about just the way you personally work of keeping your searchable database of of what editors are looking for, which knowing you, that does not come as a surprise at all. That's wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about these couple projects that you've done, Manuscript Wishlist and the Manuscript Academy, that are really focused on... I, I think the really cool thing about what you've done with those is that they're not tools just for writers, and they're not tools just for agents and editors, but it's really about not only helping writers get information they need to know to try and take their next step on the journey towards getting published, but also helping agents and editors connect with people that they would really actually be interested in working with. Right. So there are so many talented people on both sides of the desk, whether they're agents, editors, writers, and they all do actually need each other. That's something that we forget. A lot of writers don't realize that agents do need writers. Editors do need writers. And I noticed at one point that I was, this was probably 2012, 2013, there were a lot of amazing writers I was meeting at conferences, and I was like, your book sounds so good, why didn't you send it to me? And, you know, totally not awkward at all. And they'd say, like, actually, they they were very nice about it, and they said, oh, you don't represent books like this. And I said, but I want to. And it's kind of like when you're applying for a job, if your resume doesn't already have something similar, it's harder to get hired. So the equivalent in publishing is if you don't have your list of sales with something similar, people aren't going to know you're looking for it at that time anyway. So I'm one of those people, if something's wrong, it's just going to bug me until I fix it. And so I just kept thinking about this, kept thinking about this. Finally, I emailed a bunch of friends and I said, hey guys, what if we all post on Twitter what we are looking for that no one knows what we're looking for and use the tag MSWL for a manuscript wish list? Naturally, agents being incredibly busy people, most of them said, okay, I'm too busy, but cool, good idea. Anyway, so the day came around, appointed day. A few people are tweeting. I'm like retweeting everything. I'm like, yeah, guys, this is great. Good times. Suddenly, it's trending on Twitter. And I don't know if you remember, Twitter used to lock you out if you tweeted too many times per minute. I was in Twitter jail for like a good hour and a half that day. (laughs) It was something that took off a lot faster than I thought it would. I thought it made sense. I didn't realize that it would resonate so much with people. So when that started growing, uh, I also started thinking about how when editors give us a list of what they're looking for to agents, it's usually a couple paragraphs. And so I started thinking, okay, where do we post the paragraphs so that they're as searchable as this too? So then we've been through several versions of that website. I personally am not really a web designer. I designed like basic HTML stuff in like 1997 because I'm old. No, um, it was- maybe we both are. I we're both old then. I guess. I guess it's a dawning realization. Forty is coming for me later this year. So right. So. <laughs> I didn't know how to make anything that was self-sustaining. And one day a miracle occurred and two people who are both writers and also web developers contacted me and said, hey, we imagine it's a lot of work for you to sustain this. And at that point, people were emailing me like, please change this comma on my profile. And they made a way so that people could log in and update their own profiles and it could finally really be self-sustaining because as one person who only has so much time to update commas, it was you know kind of becoming a part-time job and this technology made it possible for it to grow. 
So I guess that would be like about version 3.0. We had the Twitter, we had the basic WordPress, and then we had the WordPress that could update itself with a database that everyone was logging into. About that time, again, problems that I see and cannot leave alone, I had been invited to a conference with a really amazing author, a really amazing editor, and we, they wanted us to do an author, agent, editor panel. I was psyched. I loved the editor. I loved the author. I was picturing all the crazy shenanigans we would get into. It would have been the best thing ever. So I write back and I'm like, excellent. I assume, because most conferences do, you're covering expenses. And the response I get back is, no, but I guess you can have a discounted admission to the conference. So I'm pricing it out. The hotel's like $400 a night. The flight's $600. I have to be there for like five days minimum. So we're looking at $2,000. So about that time, I was, I promise this all leads back. <laughs> Tangents! Um, <laughs> so about that time, I was also invited to a happy hour with some of the popular kids in publishing. I don't think they would think of themselves as the popular kids. I totally thought of them as the popular kids. So I'm like super nervous. And at one point, I'm thinking, what's something safe to say? Oh, let's all be mad at this conference that's not paying people and asking us to pay $2,000 to work. And the response I got was, well, if you really care about your career, you would go. And that made me so mad. <laughs> On so many levels, that made me so mad because why should it be a system where we have to pay for the opportunity to work? And, you know, I have a lot of feelings in that area that all relates to the whole internship program and everything that works there. But at that time, I was thinking to myself, okay, I get to go to seven or eight of these for free every year. I get to see parts of the country I'd never get to see. I get to meet writers. I get to do all of this for free. I never even realized how expensive this was for the people who are attending. And writers aren't known to be extremely wealthy. And think how much pressure they must feel. Because if I get to do this all the time, they're probably really feeling like this is the one thing that's going to move their career forward. So that was bothering me for a long time, just knowing that there were all these talented people who couldn't access the resources that we all want them to have. It's good for everyone if writers come to the table prepared and well-researched and knowing basic publishing things so the agent doesn't have to start from zero with them. And I happen to through amazing events. My colleague met on a bus, my now business partner, because they got into a fight about where to get off the bus. She brought her to a happy hour that night. Her first startup had just exploded and she had all that entrepreneurial spirit and knew how to do all of this and ran a film department. And so after a couple of months of talking, we came up with the idea of renting a theater space, hiring a film crew, and filming a conference. So wherever you live, you can access the same material you would at home. And with consultations, so you don't have to go to a conference to talk to an agent about your book, sometimes there are things that we can spot right away that you would never know would be a problem. You know, maybe we've seen this 10 times today, and there's no way you could know unless you can log into an agent's inbox, which you can't. That's We, we keep our correspondence private. And so just to be able to get that feedback, that access, that education from anywhere in the world, regardless of how much money you make, that's our main goal. And I've been really impressed with um, the response we've gotten. Usually it's hard to convince publishing to do anything new, but to watch people be supportive has been really amazing. That's what is so great about that, about giving more people access, because you're right, it's really easy to just lose sight of something as what sounds as simple as going to a conference to maybe meet agents or, or, or pitch your book or whatever the case may be, it's a great thing to try and give people access that way. I, I know one 
other if if I have the timeline right, I think it's been a later development. So you did manuscript wish list, and then the manuscript academy, and now. Has it been a couple years now that you've been doing the podcast? Okay, so before we started recording, I was nerding out to Ted about my favorite little recording device here, which is the size of a Nokia brick, if any of you are old enough to know what that is. I, I was very impressed with myself when I figured out how to make my um, emails forward to the text number of it. So I was getting like emails on my phone before anyone else. I was like, yeah, just the first line. But I was, I was very pleased with myself there. Yeah, I also forwarded um, my AOL Instant Messenger messages to my phone. I was, yeah, I ran an espresso drinks delivery service that way. It was great. See, you say all this about not like the tech thing and like I, I, I there's there, there was some. I, I think we could have, if we would have known you in like 2000, we could have said like, oh, she's going to develop some kind of website at some point down the road. So that all. That all fits together, I think. Thank you, Ted. I like to think that there's like a narrative constant and I'm not just all over the place. Yeah, so one thing we realized is that it's a lot easier for people who are on the go to just listen, not watch. And it's a lot easier for people who are in publishing to talk and be recorded by sound versus to be on camera. I personally hate being photographed. It's just, you know, it's a thing. A lot of, lots of introverts running around. And so it's so much easier to say, hey, can I come to your office with this little Nokia brick size thing than, hey, can you meet me somewhere that's quiet in New York? Good luck finding that with my entire film setup and my umbrella lights. So it became something that made it possible to really meet people where they are, walk around with them, get the sounds of their office, get the sounds of real publishing life. Um, we're starting a series that's going to be like day in the life where I meet them in the morning and we hear the subway, we hear their coffee being made, we see what their commute is like, we see what their actual daily life is like, we get little snippets of lunch meetings with editors. But yeah, the podcast has really, really grown. We invite on agents and editors to talk about real life. So one of our goals is to Make it so that you're not seeing us as people who are like, again, riding around in town cars, but real human beings with real lives who really, really love books. And being able to hear someone's voice, I think, makes it much easier to picture them as a real person and make it so that you can guess which one of them you want to meet if you get hold of that, if you wanted to book a consultation or get a sense of which agent is good to add to your submission list because their philosophy lines up with yours. And it's always really helpful to start your pitch letter with dear agent name. Actually use their name, please don't say dear agent. Spelled correctly, again, please. And then a line of, I am pitching to you because. And if you can say, because of that amazing thing you said in a podcast, that's much more powerful than because you represent my genre. It shows that you see us as people and really only about the top 3% of people who are submitting work do that. And their acceptance rate is much, much higher than the dear agent or the dear sirs. So yeah, life hack. If you're going to ask someone for something, first acknowledge their humanity. Whether you're asking for a job or a favor or extra cinnamon in your latte, if you say, good morning, how are you? That's going to go a lot further than, can you do this thing for me? Just on the, on the side of job applications, I am amazed how many people have no idea what an agent is, what an editor is, what publishing is. They just want a job. And so it's like, dear hiring manager, uh, like you can't even look up anyone's name at the office, really. I would like a job because I need to pay rent. Oh, really? Do you? <laughs> like, you know, and, and I know I'm sounding like a little mean and sarcastic here, but it's like, it's kind of surprising to me that people will treat someone they want something from as if they're just there to do their bidding. Do you... 
and I know this is kind of a this is a change. Do you remember? I mean, you've you've spent your working life in books. I mean, you've that that is your vocation is books. Do you remember or do you have any books or authors or even just experiences of reading when you think back to your time as you talked about being an introverted kid growing up in California that made you think books. I think that that might be what I want to do. Or was it a later development that once you were going through college and you kind of got, you had these internships and thought, oh, this seems like this might be, I mean, when I was in college, my I was convinced I was going to anchor SportsCenter. That was my life's calling. And I worked at ESPN and it was not the fit for me and I moved on. So this, the idea of podcasting and writing and all these things were kind of a I mean, if I would have thought I was going to be a podcaster in 1998, that'd been kind of crazy because that would have meant I could have seen into the future. But this, as happy as I am with the the career path I ended up with, was not something that I always thought I would be doing. So, how did that? Where did that seed of that come from for you? Okay, so if there's anyone else out there who doesn't have a strict plan, I did not have a plan at all whatsoever. I knew I liked books. I knew I was really good at writing essays about books. I knew that I liked English class the best, and I knew I was going to a college where writing was the very most important thing above everything. Whatever you were writing about, writing was what everyone focused on. I had no idea. I didn't know how publishing worked. I didn't know agencies worked. I just showed up in New York knowing I wanted to be in New York. And I've always been that person who just kind of, if I'm interested in something, I follow it. And that's actually served me really, really well. When people are writing books, they talk about plotters, people who write out the plots, and pantsers, people who go by the seat of their pants. There are also plantsers. (laughs) Ted's raising his hand. I guess... In my case, I don't usually have the five-year plan. I have the, this is interesting, and I'm going to follow it, because when I follow things that are interesting to me, it tends to work out. And in really amazing ways, too. I remember one day when my economics class had something really relevant to my dramaturgy class. And like, it's amazing when your interests can come together that way. But yeah, it was a complete accident. I remember filling out my what do you want in a roommate survey before getting to college. And I remember pausing, looking at the paper and thinking, well, I don't listen to music when I study. But if I say that I do, I'll get someone more interesting. So I erase, circle, send it in. I get a roommate who listens to music all the time. Great music, though. I was pleased. And she was just one of those people who got herself hired everywhere. She has all kinds of crazy stories. Like one time she fainted on an editor of The New Yorker and then now had a business contact. She's just that person that things happen to. And so she got an internship, big, corporate, scary, everyone wears heels, everyone's very important agency our freshman year. And when she was done after the first semester, she's like, hey, they wanted to know if I have any friends. Do you want an internship? And I'm like, uh, I've heard about this resume thing. That sounds like a good idea. I'll try it. Um, so I roll in there in my Forever 21 looking very, I didn't have an iron at that point. So I show up, they're like, do you like books? I'm like, yeah. They're like, you're hired. <laughs> so I'm in there. I actually was extremely socially uncomfortable because there was a lot of yelling in that office. And I'm, I'm not that person who can like handle having six people on hold and be okay. <laughs> 
things like that were very stressful. But I noticed that in terms of the work, I really loved it. And if I could separate out loving the work and being that massively uncomfortable socially, I took that as a really, really strong sign. Then I got hired at a medium-sized publishing house. Again, not socially the fit for me. Then a little radical magazine that wrote about politics. And then two weeks after I graduated, I saw an ad for an assistant position at my current job and have been there ever since. Is that... So like I, we set out at the beginning, that's been about 15 years now, because I think, was that 2004? Mm-hmm. Somewhere around there. Is that, I don't want to say rare, is that at least at the way publishing and literary agencies work today, is that uncommon to have been, to have found a place that you feel that good of a fit and be there for 15 years now? Yeah, I think since I worked as an intern three places that were not a good fit for me, I knew what I was not looking for. And that really helped. But yeah, it's extremely uncommon. I would say most people stay at each place probably two to four years and then move. Especially editors. A lot of editors can't really get promoted unless they move because unless someone above them leaves, they can't take up that spot. So to get another job at another position, they often have to move. I got lucky in that I really, really get along with my boss and she's so supportive and I have the freedom to take on whatever I want. A lot of Agents don't have that freedom. They have to stay on brand or, you know, hit a sales quota, which makes it so that you can't spend the editorial time with your clients that you want to. You just have to take on stuff that's big and loud and ready to go. And having that creative freedom, I think, gave me such a good working experience that it was something that could really be sustainable. Do you have, and I know I put this on my list of questions that I shared with you beforehand. Do you have a book that you've read in the last year or two that, and I'm not not asking you to plug one of your own clients, just kind of in, in general, a book that's kind of flown under the radar that you read and thought, wow, this is a really amazing book. And not even, I, maybe you were surprised it, it didn't get more attention. Maybe you weren't. I don't know. Because sometimes there's, we, we all read things that you can easily look at and say, this was amazing, and I'm also not shocked that it wasn't something that everyone had on their nightstand, but is there anything you've come across? And basically, it's a very fancy way of asking you for a great book recommendation. Yeah, right now I am reading something called Goodbye Vitamin. And in New York, there was a fair amount of buzz. They say you have to see a book cover six times before you remember it. And so I definitely recognized the book cover, but I felt like everyone was treating it as if it was this little tiny literary book that, like, you know, it'd have its little slice of very devoted fans and no one else would like it. But it's this book about a woman who goes back to stay with her parents as her father is losing his memory. And at first I was thinking, I can't handle this. This is too sad. The thought of anything bad happening to your parents as an adult is just like, there's not much that's scarier than that. And when people have what I think of as a large emotional and aesthetic range, it can make any topic palatable. And so I finally worked up the courage, renewed my library card. I thought I owed them like $400. (laughs) Turns out I only owed them 15. So I reactivated my library card and this was the first thing I checked out. You know, shout out to the New York Public Library, which is amazing. And it's one of those books that you read a sentence and you just have to pause because it's so beautiful and so true and also so mundane. Like, if you can take an absolutely normal experience of life and make it beautiful, that really, really impresses me. And to have that emotional heft to it, like, it's very respectful of the topic, but at the same time, there's enough hope and enough amusement, there's enough 
just everyone's working together to make a bad situation better. And that ultimately comes out very, very hopeful. And so I've been really impressed with that book. So that was Goodbye Vitamin. All right, see, there we go. Great book recommendation. Um, Jessica Sinsimer, thank you very much for, for doing the show with us. It's, it's a pleasure to see you as always. With the Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast. <laughs>